Hello, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory, and you're listening to Games on Film. Thank you for joining us on Games on Film, the podcast that celebrates video game movies. And today we're back with another, I think, big hitter in the pantheon of video game flicks. What are we doing today, Rory? We are covering Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. I think up until that point, it was the most expensive video game movie ever made. I think it was only beaten by uh, Prince of Persia. According to Wikipedia, and every every cent of Prince of Persia was on the screen. <laughs> um, he was quite realistic in that film, wasn't he, Jake Gyllenhaal? There was a the CGI was pitch perfect. The uh, big thing about this movie, uh, more so I think than it being an adaptation of a video game, was the uh, photorealistic CGI, as as it was vaunted at the time. Photorealistic. I guess this came out six years after Toy Story. Mm. And Toy Story being the first big CG animation feature film. It's got a character called Sid in it, hasn't it? <laughs> it certainly does. <laughs> Maybe Sid grew up to be a doctor uh, <laughs> after creating these monstrosities in Toy Story. Well, I guess it's set maybe ooh, 60 years after Toy Story, maybe? Um, yes, it's 40, set, 50? It's set December the 13th, 2065. Yeah. Apparently it's the... Director's wife's birthday. Her wife from the future. His wife from the future. <laughs> it just reminds me how in the room Tommy Wiseau spends the whole film talking about his future wife. <laughs> my, it's better than my wife calling me her first husband, which I find <laughs> quite uh, distressing. But anyway, well, it was considered a pioneer of animation at the time because up until that point, I suppose, if you look at Toy Story in terms of its human creations, they, such as Sid, they can be a little bit disturbing mm. in how they look. And in a bug's life, they barely look like humans at all. <laughs> they just gave up. It's, how many? Actually, that's a big point of contention, was it? Because the ants in that have four limbs. And that's why we're a big fans of ants in this household, because they have the correct number of limbs. R.I.P. Woody Allen. Yeah. Is he, he's not dead, is he? He's no. dead to us. <laughs> But yes, so Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, very much its uh, selling point was the technology and the skills of the artists. And it does seem that the film was produced by a subsidiary of Square, I suppose. They set up a production company, Square Pictures, to make a feature film such as this. And Square were the makers, Squaresoft, of the Final Fantasy series. And we've talked about the technical sides a lot, and it was quite clear from the DVD. Um, we've watched a lot of the features, we've watched a lot of documentary, I, I listened to the commentary, with the hope they'd talk about the story at all. But 99.9% .9 of everything was about how they did it. Yeah. Um, not why. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually, I listened to it with Japanese DVD commentary, because that one was uh, with one of the co-directors, and I thought they'd talk about the story, but it was mostly them saying... 
this bit was really hard and you can't see it. <laughs> it's like everything was like, we put all these photos on the tables of the characters, but you can't see them. It's like, oh, okay, great. Well, so the director was Hironobu Sakaguchi, mm. who was the creator of the Final Fantasy series uh, himself. And uh, there was also co-director Motonori Sakakibara. He's the one on the commentary. All right. Okay. So do you th- was he more of the technical side and Sakaguchi more of the story side do you I, think i believe i think so because in the commentary they they the only time they ever talked about the story uh, mr sakaguchi wanted this and mr sakaguchi wanted that so yes i think the big bone of contention of this film and we'll talk about this at length i suppose is how little it seems to um recreate or adapt the video game and interestingly what i've learned in interviews with the co-director and the commentary is the reason why this is called Final Fantasy is more because of the brand of the main director. Mm. Perhaps in Japan, you know, he's very well known, but this film was never made with the intention of being a Final Fantasy movie, and mm. it was kind of it was absolutely called Final Fantasy from the from the minute it started production. But I mean, he's basically an auteur, so any similarity to the games is more because of his his interests in things like the Gaia theory and stuff like that. I think the difficulty with a series such as Final Fantasy anyway is because pretty much every instalment, at least of the main series, because there are many, many spin-offs, is which one do you even adapt? Because my understanding is that pretty much all the games have a different world, a different setting, a different characters involved and Yes, there are parallels and there are little references um, scattered around within each game that fans will pick up on. But it's not like there's one Final Fantasy movie you could possibly make which would encapsulate the game, so you might as well do a completely different story to an extent. But I suppose we haven't had much experience ourselves of playing the game, so... Maybe that didn't bug us so much. I don't know. How much Final Fantasy have you played, Harry? So, I hold my hands up. When Final Fantasy VII came out, is when I think that's when the popularity of Final Fantasy in the West skyrocketed it. Rock- yeah. Rocketed it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it very much came at the right point because it was came out on the PlayStation mm. and I think it was just the right time for you know, a sort of mass appeal mm-hmm. for this kind of franchise. And it had uh, CGI cutscenes, which told the story better than ever before, apparently. So as I hold my hands up, because at this time, I was very much a Nintendo kid, and I was hugely snobby towards Final Fantasy VII. I was very much waving the flag for my N64, I just I wouldn't get into arguments. I was I was a bit I was beyond the Mario versus Sonic uh, wars off of the early nineties, but my big beef with with Sony PlayStation and I feel a little bit of Sony today. I'm trying to let go of that fact. Is is just the try hard nature of cool that the PlayStation had and and Final Fantasy being the biggest PlayStation game of the time. I had the biggest problem with that and I distinctly remember. On one day at school, when it, our football was rained off, we decided we were, t- were told to all go to Mr. I can't remember. Went back to the teacher's class and watched him play Final Fantasy VII instead <laughs> of playing football. <laughs> I was so indignant. I was so 
because he was it was at a difficult boss stage, so he would die, get respawned, go through several static screens to the boss and die, and I was so angry. So, um, with that being said, I never really played Final Fantasy properly until much later. I got my mini SNES a few years ago, and I really did enjoy Final Fantasy three. Final Fantasy VII is coming back, isn't it? That's getting a, an HD remaster. I mean, Final Fantasy VII got re-released as part of the PlayStation Classic Mini, mm-hmm. and then they've now released a bunch of the Final Fantasy games, including Number Seven, to Nintendo Switch and a few other consoles. And yes, there will be a big uh, Final Fantasy VII remake coming sometime. So, as you mentioned earlier, the fact that this had very little to do with Final Fantasy was really no skin off my nose. Um, being a massive fan of Alien and Aliens, uh, the film series, um, as we mentioned a few episodes ago, um, I'm all down for Space Marine stuff. <laughs> so um, I think Max has had a better chance of uh, impressing me than a lot of other people. Similarly, I haven't really played many of the Final Fantasy games or know really enough about them to judge whether what this film represents is, is very much in line or... or disconnected to the series. I I generally don't really play many JRPGs anyway. I think the only one I've played to a huge extent in the kind of traditional turn-based battle mode is Skies of Arcadia, just that world really appealed to me and I had a very good time doing it, but I just can't see myself picking up a a fresh Final Fantasy game and Mm. sort of having all my time sort of sucked into it. It's a little hard to get hold of at the moment because the Wii... We shop is gone, but uh, Chrono Trigger, uh, I think, rides the balance very well because it's it's very it is sort of turn based, but it requires a lot of action input. I guess mm. you know how Paper Mario requires a lot of active. You have to use your fingers quite a lot yeah. when you're fighting, and and that's really really good. I was maybe also a little bit snobbish to it because anyone who ever talked about playing PlayStation games, all they talked about were the FMVs yes. and all the cool cutscenes. And then the disconnect between those FMV sequences and then the in-game characters and the in-game action always just really bugged me and I found very jarring. And in a way, Final Fantasy The Spirits Within is one long FMV cutscene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was very much square pictures being set up to make this film. It was very much like, oh... Everyone keeps talking about how great the cutscenes in Final Fantasy 7 and 8 and, and such are. Let's make a whole movie based around that. And I think we'll probably end up doing quite a few CG video game movie spin-offs at some point. I know there's a, at least three Resident Evil CG movies that and, we'll have to do. Final Fantasy 7 has a direct sequel, yeah. um, Advent Children, I believe. Yeah. So. And I think there's Final Fantasy 15, which is the most recent mainline game, has a prequel movie as well so yeah we'll be returning to the final fantasy world at some point in one of my big arguments about playstation versus nintendo 64 i was with somebody on my side and his and his uh closing argument his uh his ace in the hole was final fantasy 7 not very final is it and I was like, <laughs> in my head i was like shut up mate that sounds <laughs> stupid <laughs> Because of my lack of Final Fantasy knowledge, I did put uh, the word out to a few friends of mine just to, who might know a bit more about the series, and their comments were pretty much all in line about basically saying that it doesn't really feel part of the Final Fantasy universe, um, not the story or the setting was very Final Fantasy, 
you know, effects were amazing at the time. Uh, remember that everyone was impressed by the detailed rendering of hair, <laughs> um, mm. and that's about it. There are, as we mentioned, some parallels between sort of Gaia theory, that uh, return in Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy X. Final Fantasy X was actually the game uh, of the time, so when the film was released, okay. Final Fantasy X came out, I think, the same month as the film. So Was it well, it's like, like Jason X? Yeah. Is it also set in space? <laughs> well, I guess this was to an extent. Mm-hmm. A little bit in space anyway, mostly of. So uh, that was kind of the general comments about it. So some little references here and there, but generally, yeah, not so much a Final Fantasy film. So thanks very much to James and Swanee and Stephen and Matthew and David and all the people who got back to me on that. I found this very old interview on an Australian DVD website from from 2002 or whatever. We we'd like to cite our sources where possible. <laughs> oh yeah, um, unfortunately, I've not cited. <laughs> Just Google Australian <laughs> DVD website and you'll find it. That's close enough. It's uh. like, is it still operating like the last blockbuster in the world? There's yeah. the last Australian DVD review website. Um, I can tell it. Well, to be honest, I'm not sure if it was a DVD review website, but 90% of the questions were about the film's translation to DVD because DVDs were new and exciting back then. In fact, I think this must have been in at least one of the first 10 DVDs I ever bought, maybe even Mm. five. The DVD, being a Sony uh, DVD, had a sticker on it saying it had a trailer for the upcoming Spider-Man film. Mm. And I was like, ooh, it's 30 seconds long. It's got that song from The Matrix... I want to take you on a roller coaster. Yeah, exactly that. It's got about five seconds of Spider-Man actually swinging and then a lot of text. Anyway, so a lot of the questions are about how it's been to film. How do you get a film onto DVD? (laughs) (laughs) Burn a copy. The answers are always, um, you should really ask a Sony representative about this. Um, The interview is with uh, that co-director, Asaki Motonori Sakibara. He's asked, with very few films based on video games doing well at the box office normally, in retrospect, do you think the film could have performed better if it had not been associated with the games? And um, he says, because Mr. Sakaguchi is really the creator of Final Fantasy and he is just so strongly associated with the game, it just became a natural progression that this movie was named after it and became what it was, which is Final Fantasy the movie. And then a follow-up is... Uh, many fans of the Final Fantasy gaming universe were upset because there are very little fantasy elements in the film, uh, such as magic, monsters, etc. Uh, can you comment on why these elements didn't appear? And he answers, uh, One of the reasons uh, goes back to my previous comment about the whole game-to-movie thing, where we didn't initially sit down and say, let's turn the game into a movie. Uh, I guess the idea of the project was elsewhere in that we wanted to push the technological envelope further for computer graphics and show off Square's skill and the artist's skill on the big screen in Hollywood. So we didn't start out saying, OK, here's a game and we're going to put it on the big screen. So that sort of does underline what we were saying earlier. Um, but just a surprise. I mean, it's only through the research of this podcast that we've discovered these interviews and, and things. So... It does throw the film in a different light. And there's there's lots of films in history, mostly remakes uh, of properties I really like, where I think, oh, this would be a really good film if it wasn't called Dawn of the Dead, if it wasn't called Robocop. Have you seen the Robocop remake? I really enjoy it. But all I'm saying is that you could absolutely have a, a film about a robot policeman 
and just not call it Robocop. Just call it Robot Policeman. The, the Robot Policeman. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, yeah, and uh, I Am Legend as well. Again, it's a cracking Will Smith horror movie, but um, they, they took a book I adore um, with a very powerful ending and said, you know what will change? The ending. <laughs> um, so... I mean, what would you call this film? If it, what, I mean, here's another question. Why, as a, to an outsider, why would this film be called Final Fantasy? As to an outsider, what would you call this film if it's not a Final Fantasy film? The Spirits Within. Well, I don't... Well, I think that's... I think that works more as a subtitle. I think in one of the making of parts of the documentary, they had an early look at the script and storyboard, and it was called Gaia mm. Final Fantasy. I, I don't think, know. considering it's effectively a ghost movie, spoilers for... <laughs> Final Fantasy, where the enemies are called Phantoms. The Phantom Menace? The Phantom Menace! Oh, I think that might have been taken. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what about Haunted Planet? That's a good one. Yeah. Phantom Planet. Phantom Planet. California. Um, Phantom. Phantom. No, Phantom I, I, think, I think Phantom Menace still works. They would best. have... They would... It's probably, probably more accurate to this film than whatever Star Wars Episode One was meant to be. To some extent, this film feels a little bit Tron-esque in that it's trying to do something technologically advanced more so than entertain. Mm. Um, and it's very wordy. And I feel what, like... The it, film? Yeah, yeah. It's like there's lots of dialogue. It's lots of words, probably because it's easier to animate people sitting down talking <laughs> than running around and jumping. With a film like this, which is trying to push the envelope in terms of CG animation production costs did sort of spiral mm. a little bit out of control. I think the final budget in the end was 137 million, according to Wikipedia. Do you know what the original was? No. I think it was 70. Okay. Well, that was, that's so what it was meant almost, to be. Almost double. Yeah. But it does seem like, at least in the figure I saw, it said that thir- that includes 30 million towards marketing. And also $45 million to construct the studio in Hawaii. Mm. So it's like kind of building in the cost of this movie with the actual setting up of the studio, which I think then closed after this film. This is all that they did. Yes, sadly, the only other vestige of Square Pictures animation wing was uh, the Animatrix came out a few years after. um, Final Flight of the Osiris. And... Okay, I've got complicated thoughts about the Matrix in general. The the special effects... Why am I calling it special effects? The the CGI characters look just that little bit better in that film. So one does wonder where we might be today if this style of animation kept on going. But yes, they, they did close, sadly. They weren't planning to necessarily do a sequel to this film, but I think they had ideas that Aki Ross who is the main character in this film, mm-hmm. she would become their sort of digital actor mascot and would appear in future Square mm. Pictures movies, sort of playing different roles and characters. Would it be Ming-Na Wen doing the voice for her as well? According to Wikipedia, it sounded like she was up for it. Mm. But It's um, funny when actors like, I would love to be in the Beetlejuice sequel, when you just read that as, actor would like work. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't know why that makes news. <laughs> So-and-so will be up for their dead character to return. Mm. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, so the the film was something of a failure, I suppose, at least box office terms. It made about $85 million. Although, side note, it was the first animated feature film from Columbia Pictures since Care Bears the Movie 2. <laughs> 
Well, I'm going to look for any sort of connective tissue there. I'm sure any... there's. I'm sure Care Bears would have... subscribe to Gaia theory. Yeah, I mean, the spirits within is like their Care Bear stare coming yeah. out their tummy. So, um, yeah, this, this is effectively a secret Care Bear movie reboot. Does, is Dr. Aki Ross part Care Bear because she's got a sort of phantom thing in her belly? Let's say yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were at the premiere of Final Fantasy and you might recognise the person next to me. This is Aki from the popular video game series. Now, did you know it cost the studios $8 million just to do her hair? I bet you I could have done it for a lot cheaper. So, with that in mind... I think the big question is, does the animation hold up? Um, because it was advertised as photorealistic. I think even at the time, I could tell it wasn't photorealistic. But I still think it looks pretty good. And I think a lot of my personal opinion is, I find I get a bit disappointed when people say, oh, it's like terrible, it's, it's unwatchable, it's the uncanny valley. I, I think that's unfair. I think it looks... It's more. It's less the um, appearance. It's more the movement. I think, which is the problem. There is a slight stiffness sometimes. Sometimes with the body animation. Sometimes with the facial animation. It does seem like everyone's had a bit of a dose of Botox. But I, I agree. I think the problem was was at the time. Yes, it was marketed as photorealistic, which it isn't. But if you're not looking at this as trying to be completely accurate, and you accept that this isn't meant to look like humans it just looks like good video game cutscene work i mean i suppose nowadays in-game graphics are better now than what this represents in terms of the facial animation mm. not just in terms of fmvs but actual in-game graphics this was released 2001 and this is 2019 i think for a 18 year old movie mm. to look like it does is still impressive and, and yeah i wouldn't watch this film expecting it to look like human beings. They just look like video game characters nowadays. You do say that, but I think, as I said earlier, it was very much advertised as photorealistic. So oh, oh, sure. I think there's a few combined things which combine to make this to make this film a box office flop, like it was. Yeah, I, I I don't dispute that. I'm just saying, if you were to watch this film now, which we just did, <laughs> I would uh, I would approach it looking at it in that way. I, I don't think it's... At no point was I repulsed mm. by the uncanny valleyness or by how upsetting the human beings looked as, say, if you go back to the original Toy Story and look at the humans in that. Uh, I mean, like, <laughs> Wallace and Wallace and Gromit looks more like a human being than, <laughs> than the uh, Sid and, and such in Toy Story 1. There's one or two shots where the animation is very stiff for the, for the most part's fine. Uh, there's also certain characters come off better. Aki is obviously the star, so she normally looks the best. Mm. Um, then I think my second favourite is, in terms of photorealism, is Dr. Sid. Yeah. Um, then the next one down is, is General Hind, the baddie, who I think... He's saved by the, his performance. He's got some great facial animation. And yes, underline this point on the podcast, animators are actors. They are very much performing their roles. And then I think way down the list is the, the male lead, Grey, who's played by Alec Baldwin. And he just looks like your square-jawed American man. <laughs> and I bring him up because in, in the commentary... Apparently, the, the director 
there's a shot of him when he's just about to be scanned and the director just came into the office and said, this shot lacked skill. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I would say with the the look of Grey, it's funny because he's introduced wearing a helmet and then he takes his helmet off and it was like, reveal the hunk. Yeah, <laughs> I just like, giggled. I burst out laughing because he just looked like, oh, they just... It's like the default man you get in a video game before you add anything interesting to him. It basically looks like Ben Affleck. Yeah. He... <laughs> nice. Sure to be fooled. Yeah, um, he's one cow pie away from Desperate Dan, isn't he? He's got square-jawed, bristled, very, very boring man. Yeah. Um, Quite often you would fully animate something because it means that all the elements that you would usually create as a CG animation in a live-action movie can therefore be better integrated with, say, humans. Mm. But for this film, the more conventional CG animations, such as the creatures, they make them so that they don't actually interact with the world at all because they're all ghost creatures. It's like... And also often invisible. Yeah, so the whole <laughs> the, the kind of whole point of making everything look like it fits within the same world is like, well, you could have done that in live action and it still would have looked the same. To, to paraphrase the immortal Ian Malcolm, and they were so concerned with whether or not they could, they didn't know whether or not they should. Yeah, it's about that. It's about what he says with that sort of his voice going high <laughs> at the end. Is that should? what I said? <laughs> yeah. So in a nutshell, though, I, I was really worried going into watching this again because I, I've I own the DVD, but I've not watched it for a good long while. I was worried that watching this was going to be a real chore. I will admit, I did get a massive headache watching it. But I think it's because I hadn't had any coffee yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it holds up, I would say. And I think if I think people who are mean about it are just being mean. Holds up on the animation front, shall we just say? Yes. Before we get into story. Yes. Should we do a synopsis? Are we are we ready to do that? Yeah. Okay. So um, dusting off my uh, my DVD. Back in the day where films came with four hours of spectacular extra features. A little inlay and everything. What's the inlay advertising? It's got... Ooh. 50% of action figures exclusive to Forbidden Planet. Is that still valid? That's still valid. Exclusive um, is the purchase of this DVD. Doesn't, uh, doesn't have a expiry date. No, it says each character comes in the beautiful window display box. They're fully clothed. And, and can you imagine if action figures came naked and you had to dress them? <laughs> <laughs> they come in beautiful window display boxes, fully clothed and heavily articulated. Wow. Um, All about that heavy articulation. Okay. Spoilers for Final Fantasy, The Spirits of Inns DVD box. The year is 2065 AD. The Earth is infested with alien spirits and mankind faces total extinction. Led by a strange dream and guided by her mentor, Dr. Sid, scientist Aki Ross struggles to collect the eight spirits in the hope of creating a force powerful enough to protect the planet. With the aid of the Deep Eyes Squadron, Aki must save the Earth from its darkest hate and unleash the spirits within. Final Fantasy The Spirits Within is the groundbreaking new CGI film from the creators of the Final Fantasy video game franchise. An Empire magazine says it's a consistent treat for the eyeballs and an early glimpse of the future of animation. 
We're kind of on the money there, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Tagline is fantasy becomes reality. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Debatable. Debatable. We found it. We're closing in on the life form. Let's move out, people. They came to unlock a mystery. I don't see how any living thing could survive out here. They came to uncover an ancient truth. This is it. Dr. Ross has opened the door for us. I say we go in. What they did... What the hell is that? ...was unleash a force... ...unlike the universe has ever known. Yeah, we saw this film at the cinema. Yeah, did so we not? show films. Yeah, yeah. Well, well you def- I think I at, definitely we saw did. it at the time. I think at, together. At Taunton Odeon, I think most probably, most probably in Taunton. Yeah, and this was the first time I'd seen it, probably for about fifteen years. I'd say. I mean, I obviously got it on DVD, so I liked it enough. And not just because of Spider-Man. <laughs> Probably to test my DVD player as well. Mm. Lots of things. <laughs> so there, there are lots of issues with it. As I say, as we both agree, the filmmakers were more obsessed with the technology than the story, it seems like. But I do still quite like this movie. I I do have a sort of... I have a soft spot for it. And there, there are problems with it. But it was a pleasure to return to it after this time and I've watched it twice in aid of this podcast and I enjoyed it both times but um I think it does in the middle sort of its momentum drops a bit and um it's so dense that even now after how long did you say was that 18 years or so since Um, it came out yeah even now, I, there's some things which I've only just started to understand. And I think it's just the, the act of taking notes for this podcast has made certain things click, which um, is a bit of a problem if you're, mm. if you're trying to make a, an entertainment for mass audiences to appreciate and enjoy. I mean, it reminded me a little bit, not just in terms of its technology progression, but also little elements of story. It kind of feels a bit avatar but the problem was is that the selling point of Avatar with its 3D world and things that captured people's imaginations more than what this was mm. trying to achieve. I mean, you can you can compare the box office. I think it's quite clear which one made the most money. Mm. But I think it's a film 
that I appreciate more than actively enjoy. Mm. I appreciate the work that went into it. And story-wise, I appreciate it is trying to do something a bit more philosophical, existential. It's not just, here's a bunch of aliens, guns blazing. It's, it's kind of going against that and trying to understand alternate viewpoints and reaching out to something a bit more, um, uh, not necessarily spiritual, even though it's spirits within, but something a bit uh, metaphysical or beyond our perceptions. And, you know, you can subscribe to that or not believe in it or or whatever, but I don't know. It, it definitely feels more like a marriage between Japanese mm. and Western sensibilities. Although a couple of my friends, when they were commenting about seeing the film at the time, they brought up the idea that maybe this is all a bit Scientology as well. It like does, the, the mm. idea of sort of, I don't know, spirits of ghosts um, actually from out of space. Yes, we discover that the antagonists are are actually not enemy alien invaders. They are space ghosts. Yeah. The ghosts of aliens who eventually do return to Gaia, to uh, Gaia being the spirit of a planet. And there's an Earth Gaia, and it's an alien Gaia. Yeah. Um, this is very much an anime, that's the thing. I think that's another reason why it didn't do so well in the West, and that was at the time where it really needed to do well in the West, in the West, to, to, to um, make us money back. Um, there's a lot of themes which are the bread and butter of, of Japanese pop culture, and storytelling, um, but they very much sit very, they sit very awkwardly in a Western narrative. Yeah, West- I, I mean, there are certain things you could see, for instance, in Doctor Who, for instance. There's quite a lot of times where, oh, the aliens aren't evil, we just have to understand them, or work out where they're coming from. They're not really here to destroy us. And they killed always... a bunch of um, <laughs> security guards at the start oh, sure. who wandered into the basement. But <laughs> that's just how they say hello. Yeah. I think with all the stuff about spirits, it reminded me a little bit of the fifth element. I don't know. Even a little bit of it reminded me of Captain Scarlet <laughs> for some reason. Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons. Yeah. Um... I don't know. Just the sort of the, the idea of a sort of ghostly... Rings. Sort of rings moving around, and I thought, yeah, because one of the characters is called Captain Grey. I kind of maybe True. just took the color association. I wrote a note because there's so much technology porn in this. It felt very Jerry Anderson. It felt very Thunderbirds, yeah. where you got, I mean, I'm sure maybe Thunderbird Five. It's traditionally used to monitor calls for help, but it can also be a laser <laughs> which destroys things. I mean, what you what you're saying about tech and stuff, I mean, I think that's also a very Japanese thing as well, is yes. that the animes and animations, it's very much, if you like tech and mech and all this kind of stuff, we're going to show you lots of very intricate spaceships landing and gears landing gears docking and yeah. all sorts of stuff. Probably so, yeah. speaks why I do like this film a lot more than, than many. I think it's very underappreciated for its influence because boy howdy do i see elements of this film everywhere specifically the um holographic keyboards and screens which you see in like all the marvel movies i mean there's been holograms before um to my it immediately springs to mind is you know return of the jedi where they look at the death star plans um there's um, the world is not enough. That's Harry's Jane Bourne reference of the of the episode, where they're walking around the CGI head of Robert Carlyle, and, and that film came out a few years before this. But I think this is the film which then influenced Minority Report, which had the swishy 
Tom Cruise uses uh, holograms to, to basically tell story. Well, uh, I saw a little piece of an interview when I was doing research on this film that um, one of, the, I think, the concept artists for Mass Effect said they were very much inspired by this movie. Yep. Metroid is another video game which, which heavily lent on different sort of goggle views. Um, sort of faintly Predator, but really it looks a lot like uh, uh, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. So yeah, I do feel that this film saw the future in a way which has been, which has been I'm thinking of The Expanse as well. Just I just see it all the time everywhere. So I do get faintly annoyed where people it's not given its due on the design front. Uh, I also really love the soundtrack. Uh, Elliot Goldenthal. He uh, first came to my attention through uh, Alien 3. And there's definitely uh, riffs from this soundtrack, which are from Alien 3. Oh, he definitely likes big crescendoing horn blasts. Speaking of stuff. that, Batman Forever. Yeah. Um he, he, if you can stick a trumpet somewhere, he will. <laughs> um, so, yes, I, I listen to this soundtrack a lot, actually, because it's pretty epic. I think fans of the Final Fantasy series, there was a bit of contention amongst them that regular series composer Nobuo Uematsu mm. did not provide the soundtrack for this. I think they got over it. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's like sellout concerts of Final Fantasy Distant Worlds uh, concert series of his music from the Final Fantasy games, like selling to sold out audiences around the world. So, I I don't think the Spirits Within is like necessarily a missed opportunity for an additional no. score from him because there's plenty to go on. But I would imagine that this film would have a very different soundtrack if sure. he had done it. And on the other side of the coin, this very Western soundtrack and very militaristic soundtrack. I think, again, makes the, the spirituality of this film just not quite fit. I feel this is like a puzzle piece, a puzzle where the, the pieces don't quite click together. I think another thing which makes this film difficult to enjoy just as a film, which is, you know, I, I, I enjoy thinking about it, but as a popcorn flick, I think one of the things which does, again, sit a bit awkwardly are the dream sequences. Uh, we start with a dream sequence, and they're peppered throughout. Get a bit of narration as well, which serves as exposition, uh, from Dr. Aki Ross. Again, seems to be there to sometimes explain things to the back row. <laughs> she has been recording this dream that she's been having. It's uh, related to, she believes, uh, this meteorite, which crash-landed on Earth, 34 years previous to the start of the film. She feels like if she can solve the riddle of this dream she keeps uh, having, then maybe she can find out what the cause of this meteor was, what it ties into with regards to these spirits she's trying to collect. In her in her narration, she says she believes this method, these dreams are a form of communication. And at the time, we don't know why she's having these dreams, but we learned that she's got some phantom particle inside her, doesn't she? Yeah, and uh, yeah, she hopes she can solve the riddle and save the Earth, but it's one of those things where she has the start of the dream, and then next time she has a little bit more, and the next time she has a little bit more, and it's one of those things where we just have to kind of put up with it. And they're deliberately um, vague as well. Because vague and not very interesting. It's true. And they, they do that to make them feel more dreamlike. And though I do loathe like a third act um, info dump, I do wonder if like just the dream sequence all at once might have worked a bit better because 
the dream sequences, they tell the story of how this alien race got to Earth. Um, but that is split up piecemeal and they just stop the story they just, and it's just a little bit a little bit dull. I like the story it ends up telling. I think it's a very powerful message for the film, but uh, you know, not very entertaining. They should have dealt with that by just having small fragments here and there, but each time it happens, you're in this dream world for at least a minute or so, and often seeing the same thing again, but just with a tiny bit more information added, and it just... It's, yeah, it's very hard to care. <laughs> it's very hard to care. As I said, the dream is telling the story of how these aliens got to Earth. And as we said earlier, these aliens are called phantoms throughout. And that's another weird thing because halfway through, the characters learn that these aren't alien invaders. They are literally dead aliens. We exist in a world where ghosts kill kill you if you get touched by a ghost. So uh, be careful <laughs> in haunted houses. I mean, um, it's pretty... The, the effect of when a spirit... Sorry, a phantom goes through someone and kind of claims their soul as a sort mm. of blue version of themselves. It's it's quite chilling. I find it very upsetting and I think that's the reason why I like it. I, I get very... I find it terrifying. Yeah, and the fact that these ghosts can go through walls, they can no, go through safe. solid surfaces, as they can come up you from Up the below. toilet! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like... side to side, up and down. Um, it's like they've all got no clip mode turned on. Mm. But um, it's weird how the, the reveal that these phantoms are actually ghosts is very strange. Like, oh, they're ghosts. We could be calling them phantoms. I mean, if you saw one, you probably would call it a ghost or a phantom or something. But it's meant to be a big shock and it, that doesn't really work. Yeah, because at one point, the villain, General Hine, is surprised when phantoms do break into their barrier city because he says, no living thing could go through there. He goes, no living thing can go there. Um, and, and yeah, I guess again to... Newsflash, dum-dum. <laughs> they're not living things. Um, but this, this dream sequence tells the story of how there was a massive war in an alien planet and it got to the point where they destroyed the planet and a part of that planet lands on Earth and that's kind of spread the infection. One interesting thing, again, I didn't really notice until I was watching a commentary, as the dream sequences go on, and she's getting closer to dying, because she's got this alien entity inside her which is infecting her, slowly killing her. The dream sequence colour scheme gets greyer and, and more black and whitey. So, um... Monochrome. Mono black and whitey! <laughs> um, it's very... Lots of orange hues and things at the start of the film, but... The last uh, dream sequence is practically black and white. But that's the first thing we see. We see her dreaming, getting her first dream. Um, she she wakes up in her floaty spaceship in space. <laughs> she wakes up and um, in her spaceship and she uh, lands in uh, old New York. Which reminds me a bit of Futurama. Yeah. Which I think came slightly before this. So Dr. Aki Ross. Yes. Played by Ming-Na Wen. Games on film... Friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast, star of Street Fighter and play, plays Mulan in Ralph Breaks the Internet. And Mulan. <laughs> and, and Mulan. Um, as a voice actress, she's great. I think I really like this character and I'm a bit sad that the quote-unquote actress... I mean, that, this is back in the day where Lara Croft was on HMV 
HMV was on FMV covers and things. FMV, FHM, FHM, FMV magazine. Yes, I would FMV expect Lara Croft to be on full motion video magazine, the magazine dedicated to FMV cutscenes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, back in the day, it seemed like an actual possibility that uh, a whole team of people would create a performance, which maybe just one actress could do. <laughs> um, I think, crucially, it's a rare female protagonist who is not in any way sexualized. She has her own agency. She is just a smart, capable, driven uh, character who just happens to be female. And it's only in the slightly leery special features on the DVD and in the commentary where you think, Oh no! Leave my leave my daughter alone. Leave my Aki Ross. She's <laughs> there's like Aki photo shoot. There's uh, tests of her where she looks like a shop dummy. It's the most uncomfortable I've been since the Girls of the House of the Dead DVD feature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there, it's it's what I also like about the character is that she is a scientist, but she's also not expected to be like kick ass. No, like there's the difference between you know quite quite strong female character, but also. You can have a strong, interesting character in a film who also isn't, like, great at kung fu or, you know, I'm also a sharpshooter. You know, she doesn't rely or need um, the kind of soldiers that she teams up with later. Mm. She's quite happy to go about her own business with or without their help. But it doesn't go against the character that she suddenly has to be able to do, like, jump kits and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, this is her job. This is what she does, and she does it very well. So mm. and she's let driven. her do it. Yeah. She's driven. And we're introduced to her going into old New York, trying to find a spirit, a, sort of a bit of life. And so while she's doing something dangerous and reckless, I don't get the impression that she is a, a dangerous and reckless idiot. She's there because the planet is running out, running out of time. She's she, about to die. She's running out of time. She's... Um, She's infected with a phantom. But I do get tired when <laughs> um, in certain action films where someone's portrayed as reckless and cool, but you realise in the film when you're watching it, they, they get away by the skin of her teeth. There's just a lot to her. She's got a great vocal performance. She has got all these various concerns. Although I don't really like the character Grey, I, I like how they have a connection and yeah, again, I just go back to I'm I'm sad that this is the last we really see of her, uh, apart from uh, a tech demo which was done for the Animatrix, uh, where she was fighting a Sentinel in a biker outfit. <laughs> <laughs> she was wearing the biker outfit. It wasn't a Sentinel with tentacles, leather jacket, and a hog. The dream is always the same. I'm standing, waiting for something. If they knew about these dreams, they'd shut me down. The question is, will I be in time to save the Earth? So while searching for this life form, this uh, spirit, Dr. Aki Ross, she gets intercepted by some of the the phantoms. She's firing up these flares into the sky which fall down like little fireworks and reveal mm. them. But then a bunch of video game type marines they're space, sweep in. They're space marines, but not really. Yeah, they're space marines on Earth. 
But they swoop in, uh, they fire this kind of green goo, which allows them to land safely rather than abseiling down. It's called um, high-density gas, they called it on the commentary. commentary. But uh, yes, they help defend Aki while she's collecting this life form, which is a little plant. A bit like um, Wally. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit like Wally. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they're kind of pissed off with her because she's there um, without really uh, permission and uh, they escape with the life form and Aki. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did very much like the lighting of the scene, actually. The, there's there's a lot of dust and there's a lot of torchlight everywhere. It gives the whole scene... Uh, I think it's the tensest scene in the film, actually. They oh. return back to Barrier City 42, mm. New well, York mean, City. Some of the most beautiful shots as well. The exterior of Barrier City. I mean, these, all the exterior shots all uh, were matte paintings, so they didn't completely CG render an entire cityscape and take a photo of it. They are matte paintings, but beautiful. Yeah, I think the design in general, it seems maybe a tad generic, but actually when you do look at the big cityscapes like that, it does look like the static backdrops of Final Fantasy VII or Mm. or such. You have these big cityscapes uh in that game at least and it, it certainly looked like that from from my knowledge there's that and talking about thematic con- um, connections i saw one person point out how the final fantasy games are a collection of people gathered to stop an apocalyptic threat but that does describe quite a lot of fiction <laughs> so yeah hmm. I'm grasping at straws there perhaps yeah it's in the scene once they get back into the city that they have to get scanned, like a sort of uh, quarantine to check if they've picked up any residual phantom infection. And I think this is the point where we see the connection between phantoms infecting human body and the parallel with that between the phantom Gaia infecting the Earth Gaia. You really do see how Earth and, and humans and, and animals are all the same. And this really does feel a bit like fake drama when you first watch this, or, I don't know, 15 times watch this yeah. and watch it now. Grey has been infected. He came into contact with one of the alien phantoms, so he's got phantom particles inside him. And then this is... Reminds me of, of Thor The Dark World, that's with the influential, where somebody gets infected with an alien particle and they lie on the table. There's a holographic representation of them above them. It's mm. uh, it's all connected. <laughs> y- you remember something that happened in Thor The Dark World. I that's did. impressive. I like that one. Okay. That's um, that's higher up my list for most people. But yes, because Aki Ross clearly has experience with this sort of thing, she uses lasers to uh, eliminate phantom particles. And she's just about to be scanned, which she doesn't want to happen. And she's rescued from this scan, from being scanned. By Dr. Sid. So, Dr. Sid, it seems that in most Final Fantasy games there is a character called Sid, uh, usually spelt C-I-D as opposed to here where it's S-I-D, but the creator, uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi, when talking about the Sid character mentioned that the idea behind having a Sid in each Final Fantasy games is to have a sort of Yoda-like figure in the Star Wars game, someone who's sort of intelligent and wise and can help the main characters through their quest. And that's very much the role of Dr. Sid in this film, played by Donald Sutherland. 
He seems to be a rare mentor who doesn't die at the end. <laughs> <laughs> or turn evil. Yeah, he is just, mm, maybe he does evil things we never see. He, <laughs> he's an evil doctor. He turned his back on evil science to save the planet, but now in the sequel he's going to be right back in doing evil things. Mm. He can create life, he can take it away. Final Fantasy, Sid's Revenge. <laughs> revenge of the Sid. <laughs> really nice character this, really nice performance, pitch perfect casting. Donna Sutherland's got a fantastic voice and got this, um, a twinkle, I would normally say twinkle in his eye, but he's got a twinkle in his voice. Twinkle in his teeth. <laughs> he has been researching these phantoms uh, since they arrived, but even before that he was interested in something called Gaia theory, which you've mentioned a few times. The idea is that sort of energy exists in all life forms mm. and that when the physical body dies... The uh, spirit within them, uh, which is enriched with the experience that they've had as a living thing, returns to Gaia and thereby enriches Gaia. But talking again about East and West uh, marrying of ideas and theories, it it also reminded me a lot of how in Japanese Shintoism, the uh, religion of Japan, the national religion of Japan, uh, there's this idea of kami, uh, kami meaning spirits and... um, Kami exist in everything, so not just in human beings, but animals, trees, even rocks, Mm. and you can almost sort of say even sort of inanimate objects as well. The game Orkami, um, talking a lot about that. That makes sense to me now. Um, My experience of that phenomenon comes really from Studio Ghibli's Spirited Away, where uh, one of the difficulties in doing a a dub or even a subtitled translation is conveying that this bathhouse was for Kami, was for River Kami and anything Kami. Yeah, but even something like Princess Mononoke has Mm. quite a bit of parallel with this movie and all about, you know, the Gaia and that is like the forest spirit and and such. And uh, yeah, it definitely will speak to a Japanese audience. Yeah, and again, that's why I think it does really perplex Western audiences quite a bit. So so Sid has been researching this, this Gaia theory before the Phantoms came, and uh, through his expertise, he's also the man who created pretty much all the defences and offensive capabilities of um, human beings. Um, he created the weaponry, he created the barriers, he creates the power packs, it's all tied into this. Gaia stuff, which I, I guess is a bit strange and no one really believes him. Yeah, because but... he says his ideas are unpopular and he encourages Aki to destroy any notes that she has just in case they fall into the wrong hands and people think she's a crackpot. It does seem strange then that he's created all this, uh, harnessed all this energy, these properties that have been discovered sort of through his research and then all of a sudden he subscribes to this one theory and people are like, Boulder Dash! We, I guess we get a big fat dollop of uh, Gaia exposition at the council meeting, which comes up. This was back when any film worth its salt, be it the Matrix sequels, be it Phantom Menace, needs to have a big old council meeting where the, the, the issue is discussed at length. Yeah, we're introduced in this scene to General Hine, the big bad who is arguing for the Zeus project. Uh, So the meteor that brought the Phantoms 34 years ago, um, he wants to fire basically a big space gun into it and blast all the Phantoms to smithereens. But Dr. Sid is arguing against that, suggesting the parallels with 
when they're trying to operate on those infected by the phantoms. The more laser you uh, try and eliminate the phantoms, they burrow deeper and deeper, and the same theory would therefore hold with firing a big laser into the meteor and the idea that this could injure the spirit of the Earth, to which everyone immediately bolts at the idea of Gaia being injured by a big space gun. Mm. Imagine if that was presented today as a way of saving the planet. His proposal against a space gun is instead that they need to collect all these spirits. They've still got the seventh and eighth spirit to obtain. And it's the idea that these spirits, when combined, Captain Planet style, will um, create... If only Captain Planet appeared at the end of the spell. <laughs> will create a sort of biowave energy pattern, which will, when layered together and correspond against the alien Gaia spirit will sort of cancel each other out. I'm glad you're not proposing this to the council. <laughs> it was like, But I think, I, I heard you struggling a bit, because it is really wishy-washy. There's a multitude of questions about this. Like, they keep saying the eighth spirit. But then spirits sort of just appear. And when they talk about, like, the sixth, seventh, eighth spirit... Other, do they have particular codes, or can it just be they have to find at least eight spirits? Well, no, because there's one time they go to a place and they think that this hawk flying over is one of the spirits, and then it's like, oh no, it's not that one. So well, they have to scan an area, and there's a specific spirit they're looking for, but it can't just be any. Well, this living is a thing. washy washy. No, I think they, the hawk wasn't a carrier of a spirit. A spirit is sort of, not all things have spirits, but then we know all things do have spirits. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Spirits of a capital S. I'm just saying what differentiates that hawk between the energy pact, which is actually the spirit. Mm, I mean, I feel there's just a scene when they are, in the final scene, they get to Earth's Gaia, and you just think there'd be loads of spirits, but then Sid says, no, get that particular spirit, I could detect it. I can't. Um, So it is, again, a little bit wishy-washy. There's one point in the film where Grey says, I don't understand. And Dr. Sid says, you don't have to understand. And I feel like that's the sort of the register of this film. It's just like... And do you think the screenwriters were like, they knew the answer? Or do you think it was easier for them to say a character knew the answer, but the character not answer? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good shorthand for solving uh, exposition in a story. Speaking of confusing and vague, this... DVD has a special feature where you can re-edit this council scene completely out of sequence, making it even more impenetrable. <laughs> I don't know why you would do that. Uh, it was just another way to show how DVDs... Any, you can do anything on the DVD. But yeah, you can have Dr. Aki Ross and, and Dr. Sid explain their theory in the wrong order. <laughs> just strange. Probably makes as much sense. Mm. General Hines getting increasingly frustrated by this and asks, well, where is the proof? And the proof is Aki herself, because that's when she reveals to everyone that they've managed to successfully contain the phantom within her by uh, giving her spirit energy to combat the effects. In her bra. In her bra. So With that... a, a holographic projector for some reason. Yeah. That's enough to convince the council to postpone the launch of Zeus, but much to the chagrin of General Hine. A little scene today broke nearly every protocol. How long do you think this would have survived outside the barrier? Aki, you know there are elements in the Council of Military just waiting for an excuse to shut us down. Look, 20 years ago, who discovered this energy in the Phantoms? You. 
And who proved the same energy source existed in humans in every life form? You. You made it possible to harness that energy for oval packs, scanners, even the barrier. The council knows that. They trust you, Doctor. We're so close to proving it. But we it. still need this part and this one here. Exactly. Two more pieces and we've solved the puzzle. And we need to be free to find those pieces. I want to show you something, Aki. What is this? Read. All life is born of Gaia and each life has a spirit. Each new spirit is housed in a physical body. Doctor. Go on. Through their experiences on Earth, each spirit matures and grows. When the physical body dies, the mature spirit, enriched by its life on Earth, returns to Gaia, bringing with it the experiences, enabling Gaia to live and grow. It's my old diary. I wrote that 43 years ago when I was the age you are now. Dr. Sid. <laughs> Remember what happened to Galileo? They threw him in jail because he said the Earth was not the center of the universe. Could happen to us. Our ideas are unpopular, Aki. If you have any notes or records that could be used against you, destroy them. Keep them up here. Right. Now, General Hine, think might be my favourite character. Just before we were recording, we had a, a mini conversation about James Woods, and apparently he's a little bit problematic right now. But oh, he, he's a right wing nut job on Twitter. <laughs> Much like General Hine. <laughs> if General Hine had Twitter, can you imagine? <laughs> oh, Gaia theory again. Shut up about Hashtag Gaia FML. Mm, the um, But I love military hotheads. Are a dime a dozen in, in science fiction. But um, I think his voice is great. His uh, facial performance, I think, is, is the best. Um, there's lots of video footage of the animator looking into a mirror. He looks almost the same. Very expressive eyebrows. And uh, when he's talking about how Dr. Sid's uh, theory, Gaia theory is all touchy-feely, he kind of, his shoulders hunch, and he's like making motions with his fingers, like touchy-feely motions. It's really hilarious. And uh, he's got a sweet leather jacket, which is uh, obviously gives him loads of uh, cool points in Harry's big book of cool. <laughs> I mean, it is coupled with the leather gloves. It's very much... I don't know, Albert Wester stall of villain 101 dress code. <laughs> I mean, also, you know, there's no need for leather gloves indoors. There's no need for a trench, trench coat indoors. If anyone walked into your office and just sat there in his trench coat and leather gloves all day, you would uh, maybe not sit next to him in the canteen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's uh, properly ronked off. And although Aki's demonstrations have been able to successfully entrap a phantom particle in her to 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 keep her healthy although that allow it buys them some time to explore their Gaia theory at the expense of um Zeus Hein definitely thinks he can use this to his advantage he feels that she can be very much under the influence of the alien invaders and so he uh, instructs his um his henchmen his soldiers to follow them to um the next spirit location to look for any suspicious activity. Yeah, he, he also speaks to Captain Grey, basically ordering them to protect Aki while she's in the wasteland looking for the net spirits uh, with his deep eyes squadron. But yes, he'll have his own soldiers 
looking after the soldiers, looking after Aki <laughs> at the same time yeah. to make sure that she doesn't go cuckoo alien. We've barely mentioned uh, the other mentions of the Deep Eye Squadron. They're your, your generic group of grunts, but I think they're perfo- I enjoy them more than a lot of the soldiers you get in a lot of alien knockoffs because you've got Steve Buscemi, you've got Ving Rhames, you just got better actors that you'd usually get when they'd usually be kind of background extras. I think the story properly picks up again in the Tucson Wasteland where they have detected the next spirit. It's a nice post-apocalyptic battleground. It was the, meant to be the big offensive against the aliens. But I, I think um, up until this point, we've had different kind of shapes of phantoms. But this is where we have a proper fight with some mega uber phantoms. Mm. Lots of big sort of... I, I guess they look... At least the bigger ones look more like those sort of microscopic bugs. Like when you have like a dust mite blown up to like a million percent or something. And that's what they look like there. Yeah, or like something like From Beyond when they sort of see into the <laughs> the sort of... Lovecraftian bug creatures which are floating around. Yeah, that's very um, much your expression. Space. I had Lovecraftian. Reminded me of uh, the mists again, yeah, which had giant yeah. monsters in it. Yeah, and not much happens other than I think actually Hind's worst fears, in a way, are proven because yeah. they shoot out these boys or buoys in the film um, to. Uh, release this material which should attract the aliens but the uh, um, particles inside Aki have a- actually end up attracting the aliens and that's when you first get the attack which which ends up killing someone some soul gets pulled out of them and you can see their little blue man screaming hmm. not the blue man group um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they were they were asked to participate but they declined due to a tour schedule <laughs> um yeah, Bloom, their souls get pulled into the mouths of these monsters and uh, they barely escape with their lives because while Aki's phantom is, is also attracting the phantoms, it's also causing her to have another dream. The uh, Heinz henchmen feel that this this is cause this is cause this is basically collusion between her and the aliens. And in the uh, in a, in a fight, they end up shooting Aki. There's a there's a just quick series of events. She gets taken into surgery. This is your second emergency surgery scene in in a space of uh, twenty minutes, perhaps. <laughs> they think the best way to save her is to because she's really although she's been shot. The main problem is that the phantom particle is starting to escape its confinement inside her. So they transplant the the latest spirit they found into her. And as sort of as a spirit guide, sort of as a foothold, a gray. It's, yeah, a sympathetic spirit is the phrase they yeah. use. They get a gray to join her in her kind of dreams. Dream like her. he basically lies down next to her and holds her hand while she's undergoing surgery. And mm. good thing she wasn't having like a sexy dream or something, like an embarrassing <laughs> dream. Oh crikey! What? Ah! <laughs> while she's undergoing the surgery, when she wakes up, she realizes. Oh, I finished the dream. She mm. reaches the end of her dream at last, and this is when she realizes that what what the phantoms are there for and how they got here, as we explained yeah, earlier. It's, it's weird though, because it feels like it takes forever to get to this realization. Aki is okay for now. They've contained the phantom, but the events of the um, the wasteland has given Hein confidence to arrest Aki and all the soldiers and Sid. 
and put them in the jail where the bars seem to be made out of laser pointers. <laughs> <laughs> they're told they're psionic lasers or something like that. Pulsonic laser bars, but I can imagine they just waft their hand through and it's just like a dot. <laughs> and any cats in that, that jail would be going mental. Apparently, it wasn't enough to just dismiss the spirit wave plan. What they actually do, is to give the council a little bit of a push, Hein takes some of his best men down to the place which controls the barriers, which stop phantoms getting in. And he decides to weaken the barrier just a touch in a certain <laughs> area where more phantoms than they could possibly imagine are getting in through energy pipes. And he goes, nothing living could exist in those pipes. Promptly everyone in that room is killed. And everything starts exploding and the phantoms start... Menacing. Menacing, <laughs> wiping out the the population of... of the barrier city and i love this chaos it's really i think really scary because you just go from a place of everyone is safe and then to everyone's very much not safe what for is work the opposite <laughs> what's the opposite of safe there's a bit where a transport ship is trying to leave and a phantom goes right through the cockpit causing the transport ship to crash and if you notice it spins over loads of people, but doesn't actually hit anyone. And I think that was to achieve a PG rating. It's also the barrier going down causes the laser pointer bars to stop working <laughs> and our heroes can escape. And, and as I said a bit earlier, I feel despite the excitement of it all, despite the, the panic and, and the sort of the danger, I feel this section is not quite as edge on, on on its seat as it could be and maybe it's because the character is a bit stilted um a bit rigid but then running around isn't terribly exciting and then there's they finally get to an airport and it seems just a lot of nothing happening and yes there is the threat of how the phantoms can come anywhere and they do eventually arrive but it just seems quite lethargic i don't know i think the isolated moments the the wasteland in new york city the tucson wasteland that they go to i think those action sequences have a lot more going for them Mm. and yes when the chaos is going through the barrier city that's you know quite exciting but yes once it's just the our heroes the team the deep eyes squadron they have to get to aki's ship so they can basically evacuate and find the eighth spirit it's just, oh, we need to find the ship. We need to start the ship. You go here, you go there. Mm. It's it's it, it was, it's really kind of like sort of spinning the wheels. You know you know they're going to release the ship and get it out, but it's just dot, it's joining the dots and there's nothing at the dots. It's just, it's just quite dull. You know, half the goodies get wiped out. Well, that's the thing. That's, this is what I don't understand. This is why I don't understand why I like this film, because <laughs> it's kind of... I can. I absolutely acknowledge that. It, it, hard to describe it. I am very moved when people die. It's very unusual to have half your main cast get wiped out in a few minutes. And the music's my favourite bit of music in that sequence when everyone starts dying and the emotion's very strong. And they sort of realise they're going to die mm. as well sometimes. That's the acknowledge it's like being trapped under ice. But when you boil it down, it's... It's just not terribly... What they're doing is not very interesting, I suppose. If, yeah. I mean, if you had more shots of of the aliens approaching or... I, I just don't know. I just can't put my finger on it. I just... Um, 
just think it's just a combination of things. I think if it didn't have the amazing score, it would be utterly, utterly dull. Um, it's just about salvaged by the amazing score. But uh, Sid, Grey and Aki do escape. And also joining him in space, but in a different spaceship, is a suicidal Hein. And Hein is just about to shoot himself in the head, which I think was quite dark for a PG movie, but I appreciated it. Although if you were in space and you wanted to kill yourself, surely you'd stick yourself out in an airlock. That's the most exciting way to go. It's like, I can't do this anywhere else but space. Um... I might as well do the space suicide. Mm, I don't know. I would want to be. I, want to, I would want to be found <laughs> with a suicide email next to me. Yeah, you you drift off into space and maybe be found by some aliens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he is he is salvaged from his depression by notification that he could fly to the Zeus cannon and and fire it into the alien thing. He he totally redresses his own mistake as just an inevitability that the uh, phantoms would inevitably got into the barrier city so the council contacts him and gives him permission to use the zeus cannon and yeah he sort of claims that they developed an immunity to the barriers anyway so the use of the zeus cannon on the phantom crater uh has been approved which coincidentally is where aki sid and gray are heading because that's where they have located the ape spirit which they believe to be a phantom spirit no, I do want to mention as well, before they get there, there is a bit of an emotional scene between Grey and Aki where um, he tries to console her grief by kissing her. A bit, I've never kissed anyone grieving. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think in a way, like, she was consoling his grief. Mm. Like, he, it's, it's a bit like, because he goes in for the hug as well and he's quite upset because he's saying, like, I believe that you know, the friends happens when you die. Yeah. Yeah. And just saying, like, I would like to believe that they're in a better place, but I just can't. This might be a bit deep for, for a podcast about video game movies, but I don't know if I would call it Gaia theory, but I'm very much of a feeling of the law of thermodynamics in that energy um, never uh, completely disappears. And so, when you when you die, um, whatever you were does become sort of a different form of energy, which is very touchy feely, as General Hine might say. But yeah, that's a bit sad for Old Grey to think you 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 just don't go anywhere. Um, but the film is very spiritual, and um, earlier on in the film, Grey looks at that hawk for a long pregnant pause, and at the end of the film, Grey does sacrifice himself, his spirit, to Gaia. And we return to the hawk, and I think it's very much meant to convey that his spirit is perhaps... I mean, he hasn't turned into a hawk. But, uh, well, hawk powers. All the powers of Van Hawk. We learn later on that even though our characters all quote-unquote died, they really just returned to Gaia. Which is something which is in the, in the Final Fantasy games. Final Fantasy VII features, I think, a planet called Gaia, but... And again, I'm not a Final Fantasy expert, but in Final Fantasy VII, it's something known as the life stream or spirit energy. It's a flow of energy that contains all the knowledge of all the creatures that ever lived on the planet. So very much like what you said earlier. Thank you for explaining that, because I think when 
This is another one of Dr. Sid's moments of clarity when they're explaining their plan to go to the impact crater and Gray is asking, what does it all mean? And Dr. Sid just says, I can't explain it at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they propose a plan to go to the crater where all the phantoms come from. Yeah. And they say... Um, Gray says they can, they, they can, we'll go in, but we won't be able to come out. And Sid says, well, we won't need to come out because if the plan works, then everything will be fine. Yeah. And Gray proposes, why don't we go anywhere else? And I think they, they literally could have done that. Gray's let's go somewhere else plan was a pretty good plan. I think, yeah, because it does... Certainly looking... less dramatic. Yeah, they're looking for the eighth spirit... And, you know, the suggestion is that they could scan somewhere else and find an, an ape spirit. So it doesn't seem like it's only eight spirits. This is why I was saying earlier, yeah. is, it, is, it, is it particular spirits? I mean, even at, at the, they later discover that where the crater is, is extremely close to Earth's Gaia spirit. So it's actually a very good place to look. But the film up until that point certainly said that you could go to an... Just keep scanning, just keep scanning, and then you'll find it. Mm. But so we do land on uh, the crater. Or they, they go down to the crater entrance in a sort of vehicle. I can't remember what it's called. They, all, all these vehicles have acronyms. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to call it POD. The POD. Um, but this is, as you said earlier, this is where the Zeus cannon is pointed. And just after locating the Ace Spirit, the Zeus cannon is fired. I love the design of the Zeus cannon. It looked like a, an, a hawk, an evil hawk of doom. <laughs> and it has a name which I think makes sense because all too often people name their spacecraft things like Who Flew Too Close to the Sun? Icarus. Yeah, they name... like Isn't a spaceship in Sunshine called Icarus? Yeah. Why would you name your spaceship after somebody too famous... Too famous? Famous for flying too close to the sun. I mean, it's even worse the fact that they they go and find Icarus because it got lost and they call their ship Icarus 2. It's like <laughs> Titanic 2 all over again. It's crazy. Um, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, Gaia is represented... It kind of is big, blue, wibbly stuff. Looks a bit like the Tron juice. And uh, meanwhile, there's the alien Gaia and there's great big whooping tentacles going... All over the place. Well, they only appear after Zeus gets used on it on the first yeah. time. So Zeus is fired, and the spirit they were tracking gets destroyed. Is this the point then where Aki has like an additional final dream? This is things. Her where... final fantasy. Her <laughs> final fantasy. I get the idea now. Though pointedly, these aren't fantasies she's having. This is stuff which actually happens. So it should it's be close enough. Final, final flashback reality. Yeah. Whatever. So, as I, as I said a few times, I've watched this as commentary, which has explained some things. I do think part of it is that it's deliberately keeping it vague, deliberately trying to keep it open to interpretation. It's dealing with with a dream space and all that stuff. But this, I learned something which I, I'm not sure how I feel about it because. What happens in her dream is this. She has this final dream where she sees a phantom and the phantom uses its tentacles to go right inside her. Well, Tentacle porn all over again. Very much so. Because in the commentary, they suggest that 
And he said, look to where its tentacle goes, because the tentacle goes inside and then some light starts from a certain place. It starts from her womb. And they say, they really heavily emphasised that she was pregnant or beginning to be pregnant. And they said it was either like because they, she had sex in space with Grey, like just before going down to the planet, or she had been, she was pregnant from some totally unknown father from before the film. Does, does it not mean that she's been impregnated by the phantom spirit, like aliens? I wouldn't know. From the commentary, it's only meant that if they talk about new life. They talk about um, Aki wakes up and says the fat um, the spirit found. Oh, with me. the hope that with the hope of new life, mm. Gaia changed the phantom within. Pretty and much. Yes, we weren't. We didn't have to look for the spirit. The spirit found her. Pretty much, and, and or it would even conveys that basically her embryo inside her is a spirit and you know this can go we can go way too deep into when life starts yeah Um, and it's again something which is absolutely not conveyed successfully to a western viewer like myself especially when there's literally no hint of of her having some sort of sex life before (laughs) um final fantasy but um it's 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 really not clear when you're watching this film exactly what happens, and it's right. kind of underlined by Doctor Sid. So he says, "I understand now. I see now what happened." <laughs> I think when I've watched it before, I have definitely taken I think your view where she has this vision, and I think just another spirit shows up and makes contact, and that saves the day. But it really felt a bit icky that if there was there's something growing inside her, which was a spirit all along. I mm. don't know. Doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, she she may or may not be pregnant, and uh, she uh, finds what she needs. The eighth MacGuffin. Again, this is I guess when you're talking about video game adaptations, it is a none more video game plot than finding the eighth pieces of so and so. They have now been able to complete this bioenergy wave which can counteract the alien Gaia energy and uh. they begin to send out the energy wave to counteract the phantoms uh, via the pod that they're in but then Zeus blasts down and destroys that pod thereby stopping podcast. yeah <laughs> <laughs> thereby stopping the uh, podcast in, in action but General Hine is getting a little bit too into blasting everything, so he overrides the mechanism um, of Zeus, which is overheating, and says, I'll blast you all to hell! His over-eagerness to completely obliterate the alien Gaia backfires big time, and in the most, I think, beautiful shot in the film, the Zeus cannon blows to bits above planet Earth. But he has done the damage, this... Zeus Cannon has done what uh, Sid has feared and blasted right down into the heart of uh, the Earth Gaia and also decimated the uh, the pod, as you said, which was casting the wave. So we've got now one choice. And I, I had to explain this to you because, again, it's really not clear because all this weirdness is happening you thought that they had destroyed the spirit wave, but they had only tr- destroyed the wave the way they were transmitting the spirit wave. 
And so the, if, if Aki basically dive-bombed into the Gaia, she would transmit the spirit wave yeah, she and should just, save the planet. She should just run to the edge of the cliff and just go, cannonball! She should have done. But in his final act of generic American heroism, <laughs> um, uh, Grey... I mean, he's called Grey. <laughs> Can yeah. you get more dull? Um, beige. Beige. General Beige. <laughs> he decides to be a conduit. He grabs hold of uh, Aki's hand and holds his other hand to the encroaching Gaia and a spirit wave transforms through to him into the Gaia and everything goes white and lovely. Actually, another reason why I feel the film feels kind of sluggish towards the end is that it's not terribly pretty at the end, is it? All the alien mutated Gaia... It's ugly. It's it's doing what it's meant to do, but to watch, it's not terribly nice. And so, it is actually what quite a relief when the purifying spirit wave gets rid of all the bad Gaia, the good the good bacteria, <laughs> stops the bad bacteria. I think as he pointed out, just like at the end of Mortal Kombat, a nice blue energy beam goes into goes into space, and all the spirits start going up. Again, not really explained to Western audiences that these little mites are actual spirits. It's meant to represent all the spirits are now purified and they can they can rest easy. And one goes through Sid's chest. And normally when an alien goes through your chest, you're kind of upset about it. <laughs> but um, it goes through his chest and goes, oh, it's warm. On the commentary, they say warmth shows that they're at peace, that they're happy. It wasn't just... Uh, a piece of recording that Donald Sutherland did not knowing he was being <laughs> recorded. Mm. And maybe he was just served a panini during mm. his recording sessions and he just went, oh, it's warm. Oh, it's warm. <laughs> yeah, if you listen very closely, um, whenever Sid talks, he also sounds like he's eating a panini. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's warm. And actually the film comes to quite an abrupt end, but it's got this, uh, you know, uh, the earth is saved, but there's a nice little bit of blissful music at the end. I feel like I've kind of petered out a bit here. But it, much like the film, I, I, I think, I mean, it's it sort of, um, uh, hmm. I think the film definitely does peter out as it goes on and... It is definitely more compelling in the first half, and I think the second half, for all of its giant phantoms going wibbly-wobbly and haywire and all these big emotional moments for the characters and these sacrifices and such, it's just sort of... It's nowhere near as bad as Wing Commander. <laughs> we went there, did we? But... There were certain elements to it which which certainly chimed with that movie and my interest levels certainly uh, lagged as it went on. Mm. I think there's big ideas, but I think it was sort of hamstrung by... It had big ideas, but it also had certain requirements because, it want, because I think Columbia Pictures, Sony, wanted to have... To justify their investment with stuff which audiences would love, you know. Um, 
I mean, I've mentioned the Matrix sequels already. I'm not defending them, but I think a reason why they're definitely not particularly popular is because they have the the, the filmmakers were so obsessed with their weighty and lofty ideas that people coming for like a kung fu movie or an action movie didn't really get what they wanted. I feel like a game with this story setting and characters would maybe be quite interesting. And maybe that's the problem, is that this is a extended cutscene, but if these cutscenes were broken up and interspersed with interesting gameplay elements, maybe it would make for a more interesting game. And I think that's the thing. This feels like a film written by someone who writes create stories for games rather than films. And I think games usually have a longer runtime and then can allow all these ideas to bed in and for you to get invested with the characters and let the story breathe. But with here, it's not that it's too much going on necessarily. It's just that it doesn't... It forgets that it needs to entertain. Mm. I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky one because I feel like there's a potentially better movie in here. And I wonder whether even maybe the fact that it's all a CG animation maybe disconnects you with the story, even. That it is made to look quite generic and bland through its animation. And maybe if it were live action, I'd be a little bit more invested. And Mm. I'd feel like there'd be a bit more snap a bit more charge a bit more pace um to it just by having the rhythms of human beings doing everything rather than cg versions of human beings Hmm. it's also just a bit of an overload i I mentioned earlier how watching this film today gave me a bit of headache (laughs) and uh, i know partly it was maybe coffee withdrawal but i mean you're quickly given what is it you talked about earth and gaia theory spirit wave is it's a very techno babbly thing yeah it's just it's just a lot and this was lots of foreign concepts, a groundbreaking bit of technology. It's an action movie. It's an epic space. It's it's spiritual. It's um just as I think I said earlier, it just doesn't quite click. I've got a very soft spot for this film. I think I would still recommend it. But as a, mm, I would still, oh, I don't know, would I recommend it? It's, it's touch and go. I would recommend it to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you like Spider-Man teaser trailers, check out the DVD. <laughs> I'll say it's underrated. I think I'm happy with saying that. I think it's underrated. I think it's more influential than people think it is. And I think it is at the very least trying to do something more interesting than just and just look at the special effects and just make an action movie but i think it reached for the stars and didn't quite get there well according to the main character in the video game life is strange uh she says i don't care what anybody says it's one of the best sci-fi films ever made is that Life is Strange is another video game, isn't it? Yep, published by Square Enix. So, well, <laughs> I think that might explain it. But I think it was the original. I think it was the developers of the game maybe doing a nice little nod to their um, publishing company. I did notice the logo for Square Pictures was a rectangle. Yeah, maybe it was a mistake <laughs> to begin with. Like, oh, I've got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> Can't even get a shape right. 
What did you think? Well, I feared the worst in terms of the visual animation, but I think it still holds up. In that respect, I still think it's perfectly watchable if you're going back to this, or even if you haven't seen it for the first time. I think for a, an 18-year-old movie, it really still looks the business when it needs to be. But I think its failings are more in connecting to me. It's quite pretty to look at in places, but I feel like it's maybe a bit too self-important for its own good. And I, I, I've got a lot of time for self-important movies, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not sure it necessarily delivered um, those concepts in an entertaining enough package. Well, cool. It's um, nice to have finally done Final Fantasy The Spirits of In, but uh, what are we doing next? Well, we are going to be returning to Netflix. We did Castlevania Seasons 1 and 2 previously on the podcast, but we're going to take a different series as there's a new batch of episodes coming up very soon at time of recording. We are going to be looking at Black Mirror, and specifically we'll be looking at their interactive episode from last year, Bandersnatch. In the meantime, though, um, how can people keep in touch with Games on Film? You can find our website at gamesonfilm.witsite.com slash podcast, or you can access it through tinyurl.com slash gofpod. There you can find all kinds of links to interesting content about video game movies, plus ways you can support the show through our Amazon wishlist, or by going to co hyphen fee, that's ko hyphen fi dot com and throwing us a little bit of change so we can purchase more brilliant films like Final Fantasy on DVD. You can also contact us and find us through our Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Games on Film Pod for all of those. I'm on Twitter at Rory Steele. I'm at Only Man Who Can. And you can also email us gamesonfilmpod at gmail.com. And the music for this episode was composed by David Lightfoot. So that was Final Fantasy. Time to get back to reality. I've been Harry. I've been Rory. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.